They say everybody's got different problems. Well, maybe so, but I've got a song about one problem that every one of us have, and that's taxes. Well, this song's about what it's like after taxes. All right, Ian, so we're not going to play the intro music today, so I feel like in the middle of the ocean without any flippers. Yeah, this is different, but I think this is what the pros do. They don't rely on cheesy music to make good podcasts, so here we are. Here we are. This is a podcast for location-independent entrepreneurs, and often what that implies is that we move around a lot, and we have small businesses with elements distributed around the globe. And this brings up a lot of problems and a lot of opportunities. And one of the problem opportunity locuses is taxes. We're just so lucky to have Phil Hodgen from Hodgen.com on the program today, an internationally recognized tax expert, a leading voice in issues of American citizenship, specifically around expatriation and repatriation, and a presenter now at two of our events and an active member of our community. And he's probably got a lot of other accolades from real organizations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, at our annual meetup every year in October, we talk about it a lot on this program. Our podcast producer, Jane, took the time out to talk to Phil. And so that's the voice you're going to hear on this week's program, we're just going to sort of hover above and listen in and comment when we can't shut up. So that's the plan here. But first, let's mention some things that you can expect to hear in this interview. The first is we're going to hear the case of the accidental American. We're going to hear the advantages and disadvantages to keeping your U.S. passport. And we're going to talk about the number one most elegant way to reduce your tax liability. Yeah, and listen in because most of us couldn't afford this information from Phil on our own. So <laughs> this is a treat. From them total wages earned down to that net amount that's due. I feel a painful sense of loss between the two. I'm Phil Hodgen. I'm in Pasadena, California and seat 2A on some random flight somewhere. All I do is international tax. Probably 80% of it is for people who are from outside the United States and invest or move to the United States. The other 20% is for people in the United States cleaning up messes or trying to avoid messes. And you did this fantastic workshop at DCBKK. And you went through very logically how people can start to mitigate their tax liability, really. And I think the way you described it, you described it in a very clever way, which is never less later. So perhaps we can just go through that one by one. So in terms of the never, what are we talking about? Never means you earn income now and you never have to pay tax on it. And the way you do this is there are specific little rules built into the tax code that say if you have one of these, this category of income, we promise not to tax it because of political reason A, B, or C. And the classic one for the DCers is the foreign earned income exclusion. So you're an American working abroad, self-employed or an employee, and you make up to 100800 which is the 2015 amount. The U.S. government says if you jump through the hoops in the correct way, you will not get taxed on that income. For income tax, there's a self-employment tax, but the income tax. So that's the never. And there's some other categories that don't really apply to DCers, but like municipal bond interest, things like that. When I'm talking about you know this foreign earned income exclusion, go pull up Form 2555 on the interwebs. That's going to be the form that works and the instructions to it as well. And that'll give you the clue. But here's what happens. You need like three pieces. The first thing is you need to have a tax home outside the U.S. And if you're a perpetual traveler living out of your backpack, the IRS position is your tax home is where you are. So you've got that covered pretty much for the random DCer. 
The second thing you need is you need foreign earned income. And this is also really simple, and you've got that covered too, which is when you're doing the work, where's your body on the planet, inside or outside the borders of the United States? So you're going to have that covered as well. And there are a few edge cases if you're out in international waters, you're nowhere as far as the tax system is concerned. But DCers don't care about that. And then the third one is the one that you need to pay some care, love, and attention to. And this is, in order to play this game, you need to ante up the table stakes, which means you either have this thing called the physical presence test, meaning you spend a lot of days outside the United States, or you have this thing called the bona fide residence test, which means not really truly you're a resident of another country. If you look at the Form 2555, part two of it says, prove to me that you are a bona fide resident of another country. Answer a bunch of questions. Part three is, prove to me, the U.S. government, that you spend enough days outside the United States. And if you can prove both those things, then we'll give you a tax break, meaning your income's not taxable. What are the relative advantages of having the physical presence outside the UK as opposed to the bona fide overseas resident? The benefit of the bona fide resident test over the count the days test, or look at it the other way, however you choose, count the days, you're going to have to be pretty anal retentive and count the days. And so for a lot of personalities, record keeping and doing stuff like that is just not in the DNA. So if you can get the bona fide resident test, no, really, truly, I'm a resident of another country, then you do not have to count the number of days you're outside the United States. So that's the primary benefit of it. The second benefit is under the count the days test, you're limited on how many days you can be in the United States. With the bona fide resident, I really live in the UK, I really live in Spain, you can have many more days in the United States without blowing your tax benefits. You were describing how you keep a spreadsheet. Talk me through that. Okay, so this developed from defending a lot of audits like this. And so if you're doing the count the days thing, here's a spreadsheet. So imagine a spreadsheet in your head. The first column is going to be days, January 1 through whatever. The second column, I put the number of days that the person is in the United States for the full day. And and if they were there, I put a 1 in there. If they weren't there, I leave a blank. The column to the right of that is days that were partly in the United States. You're traveling to and from the United States. So if this was a day that you flew into San Francisco airport and you arrived at 11.55 p.m., part day is the same as a whole day, and you put a one in that column next to that date. The column to the right of that is days fully outside the United States. So now with all of these things, again, you put a one in the column if you were fully outside the United States for 24 hours, midnight to my night. So what you do next, you are going to try and figure out from this data where you had a 12-month period with 330 days or more outside the United States. So in other words, the column three thing is going to be the most important one to you, full days outside the United States. And so the fourth column, or the last column, which is the fifth one technically, will be a sum function where you go and you say today's date and then you go backwards in time a full 12 months and you say what's the sum of those ones in that column. And if the column says sum is 330 or more, I use conditional formatting and it flashes a beautiful color and I say yay, I win. I have a 12-month period ending in that date that has the requisite number of days. So that's what I do. I've battle-tested in audits and it seems to work very well. And it's also good just to double-check and make sure you didn't make any mistakes. Let's talk about the bona fide residence status. What sort of people does that suit? Bona fide residence means, no, I'm really living there, and I'm going to be living there for an indeterminate amount of time. I'm going to return to the U.S. eventually, but this is my home. 
And it's really an intention-based thing. You know, what do I intend to do? And since it's really hard for the government to read your mind, they kind of look at the actions that you take, external actions, to figure out if you're telling the truth, quite frankly, when you're claiming the bona fide residence test. The simplest one that will either make you win or lose is what kind of visa are you in when you go to a country? And so if you're going on visa runs every 30 days and you're living in Bali, that kind of negates the claim, I'm a full-time bona fide resident of Bali. To my mind, having the proper visa status that in the eyes of the other government, you can live there for some extended period of time, and you're part of the fabric of society, including if they have an income tax, you're on the hook for the income tax as a resident, that's the flag that I'm looking for to claim it. And somebody brought that up in your workshop, actually. If you go and live somewhere that's got a high tax rate, actually, that has to be a consideration in your equation for whether you want to live there. Yeah, and, you know, not to be a grumpy get-off-my-lawn kind of guy, but if the strategy is, well, I'm going to go hang out in a country and they just won't find out about me and that's how I won't pay tax there, that can work. It's just don't expect to claim the bona fide residence test for the United States and get out of the U.S. tax system, too. Are all countries eligible? Will the tax system look at any country in the world? Yeah, any country in the world. I mean, barring international waters, which are part of no country, Antarctica, and there are a few other little blots on the map that have some indeterminate territorial status. As long as it's within a country, you're fine. Now, Ian, although I've lived outside of the U.S., my home country, for the better part of a decade now, I've never achieved bona fide residence in a foreign country. And I'm actually in the process of doing that right now. So we'll have more in the future about that on the show. I think one of the things Phil does so well is when you look at these tax programs on the surface, sometimes like you see the savings and you see the the opportunity and those things are real. But what's difficult to understand if you haven't been through the process is the cost of compliance. I think one of the things that Phil does really well is Underlining the importance of understanding what it's going to cost you to comply with the standards that are going to allow you to get those benefits. Yeah, I'll give you an example. I tried to do the 12 months out of the year a couple of years ago, staying out of the country for 12 months out of the year because I wanted to travel one, but I wanted to also get this exclusion. And <laughs> the emotional burden of not being able to travel back to the United States to take care of business to try and save a couple of dollars became so great that I couldn't do it. Right. And so that's the cost of compliance, right? It's like I thought this would be easy. And so I think for a lot of people it is because they already live out of the United States. But for for me and for a lot of people that we know, they make it their mission to stay out so they can save this money. Yeah, sure. And that becomes a lot harder, I think, than if you're already living outside and you have no plans to move back. Now, for those of you that do travel around full time and are Americans, this is a very real opportunity. So Phil goes into some detail here about the foreign income exclusion. The maximum you can claim for the foreign earned income exclusion is 2015 numbers, 100,800. So sometime late in 2015, they'll come out with an announcement that'll be indexed for inflation upward a little bit, and you'll see the number for 2016. So that's the maximum. There's also a housing exclusion. That gives me brain damage. It's hard to calculate. It's usually a tenth of the value of the foreign earned income exclusion, and therefore I tend to pull the foghorn leghorn, go away, boy, don't bother me. And I just ignore it because the payoff for claiming it is too small. Now, so you have a 100,800 maximum. How much can you really take? What you have to think of is in a kind of a two-step method. First thing is, am I in the game? And you're in the game if you have the bona fide residence test, but let's ignore that because 
most people don't, or you're in the game because you have the physical presence test. You've spent enough days out of the U.S. And the way I like to think about it is these 12-month periods are like little umbrellas, and they shelter days. And rain is coming down, and rain means if you get wet, you're taxable for that day. And so the random year has 365 days in it, and your objective is to get enough umbrellas to cover all 365 days, and therefore you are not going to be taxable on those days. So let's say that you are out of the country for the entire calendar year of 2015. So 365 days out of the year. You have a 12-month period that's the whole year, and you're out 365 days. Therefore, you have this fraction, 365, number of days you're out of the United States, numerator, 365, denominator, totally in the year, multiplied by 100,800 equals total value. Now, if you started your year on March 1, because that was the first year you moved abroad, you were not out 365 days of the year, but just from March until December. That happens to be 306 days because I did the math on my slides. And so you'll get a fraction of the amount, which is 306 over 365 times 100,800 equals 84,506. Also pre-done math. So you move a part year abroad, you won't get the full 100,000 plus, but you'll get part of it. So that's the less. That's the less. Yeah. And at the extreme, you could claim this for a day. So if you are out of the United States up until January 2 of 2015, you had January 1 was your last full day out of the United States. You had one day out of the calendar year. So 1 over 365 turns out to be $276 of tax-free income. So if you wanted to go to the extreme of doing the paperwork to make $276 tax-free, you could. So we've been talking about people that have a sort of income of up to, say, 100000 or so. What about bigger earners? What's the best way for them to begin to mitigate tax? Let's sort of tag that at people who are making a million plus a year in their business. Profit. What do you do? And so the answer is you look at what the juggernauts of the planet are doing, the Googles and the Apples, and you see, oh, look, they are squirreling away hundreds of billions of dollars in cash outside the United States. Why are they doing that? And the answer is they are using some features of the tax code that say as long as you don't bring your foreign profits back to the United States and you jump through the circus hoops in the correct order, you don't have to pay tax on your foreign profits until you return to the United States. So this is the later. This is the later. So this is the third one, the later. And you're using the gravity equivalent here is the time value of money strategy. And what you do... That sounds complicated. Well, it's the idea of if I have $100 now and I have to give it to you, if I give it to you next year, I can stick it in the bank for a year and earn the interest, then give it to you, and I'm a little bit richer just by having put you off for a year. So you're gaining the interest on tax that you've avoided paying in that year. Exactly. And if you put it in the bank for 1%, that's not worth much. But if you're like Google and you put $5 billion in the bank and you make 40% on that in your business, that's worth $2 billion for you for just delaying it a year. And who does that suit? Can anybody in the kind of location independent world, is it worth anybody doing that? Anybody in theory can do this. 
the question is, should you do this? And the first way I would look at it is, you think about the overhead, not only the cash cost to doing this, but frankly, the distraction from you building your business. But if you've decided you can do this in terms of handling the overhead cost of it, now the next question is, what's it worth to you? The people who can do this best are companies that have a need for working capital. And so if you can use cash, buy inventory, flip it over two or three times in the year and make a profit on it, that's going to be the optimal kind of business that will be for. And so it's no accident that you see Apple, for instance, doing this thing because they have a need for cash. They can buy inventory, manufacture it. They can build shops all over the world outside the United States. They can use the cash and they can make a good return on it. Same thing for you. If you have a service business, you're making money off your brain. You're not making money off of inventory and an extra 100000 or a million in the bank is not going to make you any smarter. Should you worry about your credibility? Because obviously it's very controversial. There's been a lot of people who have actually stopped using some of these companies because of they feel it's so slippery what they're doing with tax. Is that an issue? Yeah, but I mean, truly, there are always going to be these hashtag activism people. And ignore those people. Just do your business. You know, screw them. Okay, so what haven't we covered? Is there anything that's incredibly important to anybody who is looking to mitigate their tax? What are the mistakes that people sometimes make and screw it up? The biggest mistake is the most boring thing of all, which is get good at bookkeeping. And it doesn't mean you have to be good. You have to either delegate it to a machine or delegate it to a human, but you should get good at bookkeeping. Because if you do not have documentation for your stuff, you're not going to win anything if you're audited. You're not going to remember that, oh, I spent $1,500 on a business expense, therefore you're going to pay more tax than you had to. I am a big advocate of bookkeeping. Second thing I'm a big advocate of is telling the truth. Don't bullshit on your tax returns. My personal experience is when I started telling the truth on my tax returns, I started making a lot more money. So Dan, let me just jump in here real quick and comment on what Phil is saying. I agree 100%. Don't bullshit on your tax returns, but also don't bullshit to yourself and your potential buyer of your company. This came up for us recently. Someone bought our company and it was extremely important that we had honest and reliable books and also tax returns so they could value the company properly. And this is the first place, if I'm buying a company, if I start to see inconsistencies here, I'm going to worry that there's other inconsistencies other places in the business. Telling the truth isn't only important for the IRS and for people who might want to buy your business in the future, but for number one, for you, so that you can know where you're at in your business and have an honest assessment of where things are at. And so in this next bit, Phil talks a little bit about that. After tax, you can dream about vacations in the sun. Talk me through how you actually started telling the truth and it worked out for you. Well, by telling the truth, I'm talking about stuff where if I take my wife out to dinner, I don't pretend that that's going to be a business expense. There are two things happening. The one is now my bookkeeping is sending me a clear and accurate signal of what my business is really doing. So, you know, ask myself, do I want to have a clear and accurate signal, this is working, this is not working, coming back from my financial data? Well, yeah, I do, because then I can make better decisions. But the more important one is... If I'm lying to the government, I'm telling myself a message that I can only succeed in life by being a liar. And that's just not true. When you just say, no, I can succeed because I'm creative, I do a good job, I create value for my customers, that's when you're going to start to win. Is there any sort of client that had got himself into a real mess and you could kind of see how it was happening? 
they are boring and predictable messes. And it comes back to this emphasis on be systematic and do bookkeeping. Pretty much anything you do that is international tax related, if you screw it up, the default penalty is a $10,000 penalty. You're risking that. That's your risk. So as you're building more complexity into your life with a little corporation in Hong Kong and stuff like that, you're building more complexity, therefore more opportunities to screw something up. So a classic example is you have a little foreign corporation and you own it 100%. There's this form, Form 5471. Well, you have to file it every year. If you're a day late, they want to tag you with a $10,000 penalty. The method they use is they will tag you with a penalty and then make you shovel snow uphill in hell in the summertime to gout out from underneath it. The first time you do it, they'll give you a waiver of the penalty, no problem. But I've seen the second problem, two years later, you haven't learned your lesson, I've seen it filed on September 16, a day late. No, so we the, want the penalty. the U.S. tax filing day is? For this particular form, it would be a September 15. This is another one of the traps that different forms have multiple different filing deadlines ranging from March to December. And unless you track those carefully, you can fail utterly and tag these $10,000 penalties. So that person failed just by one day? By one day. And nothing you can do because the government says, well, we gave you a break once. We're not going to give you a second break. Can you appeal against the fine? You can appeal, but with lower and lower probability of success. And especially if you didn't learn your lesson the first time, you can't say, oh, reasonable, you know, I tried my best but failed. That works once. Have you seen different types of people coming to you who've started to live in this way, live abroad, earn income abroad, use the tax system in a different way in the U.S.? Have those sorts of people changed? Just because of the stuff I do, I like to call them brains across borders kind of people. They will be flying and basically be making money out of their brains, and wherever their brains are, that's where they're making the money. could be consultants, you could be writing software, could be doing anything like that. They might go and plunk down and live permanently in one place. I know people have been living in the Caribbean for 15, 20 years and doing that. And there'll be consultants flying in and out of different countries and having clients in different places. And or conversely, people in the U.S. and they go and they might be at the lowest case living out of your backpack and going from place to place or might plunk down roots with a family. So this is increasingly common because it's possible. And before, it really wasn't possible, let's say, 15, 20 years ago. It's part of the information technology revolution that's been happening. I think so. And I think particularly once Skype occurred and the quality of a Skype conversation became good enough, that started to change it. And frankly, just the climate of life changed. I mean, at a very boring level, I was at a giant bank in 91 that was acquired, and I was jettisoned along with 20,000 of my close personal friends. And... Back then, in the early 90s, you simply did not work out of your apartment. You needed an office address in a downtown location. You know, 10 years later, in the early 2000s, yeah, it was fine. No, we want your help. We don't care where you are. And I think this has only continued. And in fact, being mobile is mainstream at this point, at least as far as I'm concerned. There's one other thing we haven't talked about, which is I followed on your blog for a long time a, a kind of diary you had of somebody called the Accidental American, yeah. which was somebody who was sort of accidentally born in America and was actually trying to move out of their American citizenship, which sounds quite extreme. Can you just talk me through how many people are trying to do that and what the process is like? 
Yeah, this is a really interesting situation. So she is 17. She has an Irish passport, and she will go to university next year. Because her parents happened to be in the United States when she was born, so accidental, she has U.S. passport because citizen at birth. Now she's living just outside of London and going to university, and it turns out because she has the U.S. passport, her tuition costs will be approximately triple. And so she needs to get rid of the U.S. passport in order to live a normal life in the U.K. with her Irish passport and go to school, as she chooses to do. This is, you know, if you want to hit Mr. Google and ask for it, expatriation is the word. The U.S. seems to use expatriate in a completely different way than everybody else on the planet. But, yeah, that, that's what it is. How do they use expatriate? British people abroad means just, I'm British, I'm living outside the country. For U.S. purposes, expatriate means you've taken a conscious act and you've renounced your U.S. citizenship. So you are no longer a citizen and now you're living abroad. So it's a legal thing? It's a legal thing rather than a sort of just colloquial, this is where I happen to be, I'm an expat living in Dubai or whatever. The blog was really interesting because it's a very complicated process and you laid it out in real time as it was happening to her. Just give us a brief resume of how it panned out. Her situation is about as clean as you can get. If you want to give up your U.S. citizenship, think about it as logging out of two government databases, the citizenship database and the tax database. Well, she's 17, has never worked, so she has no income. She's never filed a tax return. It turns out she has a Social Security card because she acquired one at birth. You know, it was assigned, a number was assigned when she was born in the U.S. So we have to systematically work her through the system. And the idea is you have to clean up the previous five years of tax returns and prove to the government you've paid everything up and you've done all the paperwork. In her case, the paperwork required is none because she never had any income. So it's going to be easy for the prior five years. For the year she gives up her citizenship, we'll file this form 8854 thing, and that'll be the way she officially logs out, rings the gong, and she's gone from the tax system forever. And then the other thing she has to do is log out of the I Am a Citizen network. And that means going back and forth to the embassy in London or your favorite embassy or consulate wherever you are on the planet and jumping through a bunch of hoops. So the first thing is she's under age 18, so she's a minor. And the State Department has the right to say, no, you're too young, you don't understand what you're doing, we're not going to allow you to do this, you have to wait till you're age 18. So she went to an interview, they determined that she was sane and she knew what she was doing and she wasn't being coerced by her parents on this. And so they scheduled a second appointment at which she will go back to the embassy and that's going to be sometime in the next couple of weeks, late October. I don't remember the exact date. At which point, she will sign a bunch of forms. She will stand facing the flag, raise her right hand, and say some mighty oath, you know, so, and they will then say, okay, you're a former citizen. Three or four months later, or whatever the lag time is for paperwork, she'll get a piece of paper in the mail, certificate of loss of nationality, and that's her ticket to prove to everybody for the rest of the time that she's no longer a U.S. citizen, effective that date of that second appointment at the embassy in London. And what do they do? Do they take your passport away, or physically what happens? Physically what happens, there's this form DS for Department of State 4079. You fill it in, go read it. This is one of the more incoherent, gibberish-laden 
hard to understand forms. You, they ask you questions, and it's really designed for a time when people were clamoring for U.S. citizenship rather than clamoring to get out of U.S. citizenship. So the logic is kind of upside down for your purposes. You fill that in, you give it to them. They make you sign some other forms that they print and fill in there. And a sufficiently high consular official will witness this and sign it and approve it and whatnot. But that's kind of the system, and it's all internal paperwork for them. Is it a one-way street? Once she's renounced it, can she ever take it back? Interestingly, the immigration bureaucracy in the United States is remarkably agnostic. So if she gave up her U.S. citizenship on a Thursday, she is immediately capable of getting on a plane with her Irish passport, flying into the United States, appearing at JFK, and saying, here I am, you know, I'm from a decent country, I don't need a passport or a, a visa, and there she is. And I've seen it even from countries that don't have passports like EU passports, Saudi and whatnot. They'll give you a tourist visa. They'll give you a business visitor visa. You can even qualify for a green card. Or indeed, you could become a citizen again. So you could get your citizenship back. You could. And in fact, the tax rules for this whole process anticipate that you might go through expatriation process two or three times. They have those sort of built into it. It sounds quite an extreme thing to do. How many people are wanting to do that? I think the official stats are four or 5,000 people a year do this. Many more people, I think, well, I know for a fact because they contact us, kick the tires and decide to do it or not do it. So a lot of people look at it, and relatively few at the moment do it. But I think, you know, just as you asked about the people, is there a trend line for people who are more mobile and living all over the world sort of independently? I think the trend line is that more and more people will look at this simply because the U.S. passport is now a net burden to Americans living abroad rather than a net benefit. And presumably as people have more complicated relationships, they get married to other nationalities, that's going to grow. Exactly. I mean, at the moment, because the U.S. government is on this mighty jihad against foreign bank accounts, it's extremely difficult for Americans to do simple banking outside the United States. So you want to open up a bank account, you want to open up a bank account for your business. You're living in Germany and you do the normal thing that people do. You want to open up a little investment account and buy stocks and bonds and stuff like that. All of these things are exceedingly difficult because of U.S. government attempts to export its tax laws and collect money from everybody everywhere. And so this additional friction is what really, you know, people say to me, why do people do this? And probably the number one thing at this point is because of the tax cost of doing a tax return every year, which can be sometimes several thousand dollars, with the built-in bonus of if you screw something up, there's a ten dollars or $20,000 penalty. And people get sick of that. And then they look and they say, well, this little retirement account that I thought was a retirement account in my home country... The U.S. government doesn't think it's a retirement account. They think it's a taxable account. How do I save for retirement? Or like in the U.K., there's a little thing called an ISA, individual savings account, tax-free account in the U.K. U.S. government doesn't think it's tax-free. So, you know, this little benefit is taken from me even though I've lived in the U.K. for the last 30 years. The little things start to hit. Other reasons I see, particularly in the Middle East, You'll see a situation where granddad started a business 50 years ago, inherited by dad, and now the son was born in the United States. Accident of birth again. And now the company's worth $100 million because it's big. Father, I've been in the office with the discussion between the father and the son, and the father says, if you inherit this business and you die, then the U.S. government wants 40% of it for estate tax. This business was built completely in this region, never touched the United States, 
you're not going to give a penny of it to the U.S. government. So you make a choice, passport or this business, what do you want? And they say, oh, okay. I've also seen that the U.S. government has all of these sanctions rules. Well, you can't do business in Sudan, you can't do business here. You know, try explaining that to that father who has been selling tractors into the Sudan for the last 30 years, and now his son cannot own the business because that's breaking the sanctions regime against the Sudan. Completely benign, yet the U.S. government systems encourage this son to give up his U.S. passport. What are the advantages of keeping your U.S. passport? There are two. The first is, any time things are bad, you can get on a plane and you have a place to go and you're safe. Paradoxically, I do a lot of business in Lebanon. You would think that everyone wants something in their hip pocket, yet I've seen a lot of people in Lebanon give up the U.S. passport and keep the Lebanese passport. So you have to wonder, okay, is there a lot of attraction to that? I don't know. The second one is you can get on a plane and go almost anywhere that freely travel. EU passports are great that way. Canadian passports are great. U.S. passports. So that's a huge benefit. You don't have to go through the visa dance. So those are the two things I see. How across this whole changing way of work do you think the legal profession is? Do you feel that when you talk to other lawyers, other people within that field, that they're really being as switched on as you are, frankly, you know, in terms of people working much more internationally? There are a few lawyers who are way at the front end of this parade, but I will tell my peers, you know what, I have Saudi royalty as clients because of my blog, and they look at me like I have five heads. You know, they don't get it. And the second thing is they say, well, where do you get your business? And I say, well, I get on a plane and I go places and I talk to people. And they don't get it. And it's not hard. I get so much business from people who announce themselves out of the blue and say, I've been on your email list for two years. I've been reading your blog for three years. When they call me, they know me already. For me, it's just, it tickles me. It's just fun. I meet people I would never meet before. And in terms of business you know, it's, it's almost as if you just show up, be friendly, and it works. And I remember I was sitting around with some friends once, and I say, well, here's how I do a certain kind of thing at a fixed price. And there were six of them that say, you can't do that. And I said, well, I'm doing it now. <laughs> just like, so there's just this, you know, no, it's still 1974. You can't do that. There's a huge range of clients going from Saudi royal family to digital nomad that's living from a backpack in Bali. Yeah. The fun thing is... One of the reasons I like the D.C. is because people are optimistic and they see the future bigger than their past. There's just fun to be had. And probably for D.C.ers like me, there are many more interesting things to do than there's time to do. That's why I'm here at D.C.B.K.K., because just interesting people. Whether I ever get business out of this or not, I don't care. You know, blunt truth is I don't have any clients in the D.C., period. And if I never do don't matter to me at all. So what do you get out of it? Why did you join? Because I meet interesting people. I mean, even sitting upstairs in the executive lounge and having breakfast and meeting, sitting down with random people and just having interesting chats, and they're doing business in things that I would never touch in a million years. I would never meet them in a million years. And they're doing stuff, and it's cool. Because from them total wages earned Down to that net amount that's due I feel a painful sense of loss between the two one of the things that i'm optimistic about is i mean this sort of post passport society i feel like there has to be some innovation there i feel like people have the flexibility to live and work outside of the place where they were born and this is a privilege that isn't just extended to the wealthiest people anymore 
And so I really feel like governments need to adjust to that. And I'm optimistic about the changes that I see coming down the pike. I'm optimistic about that too. And just in general, I'm optimistic about my tax situation because I left California. So it's all <laughs> upside once you do that. I feel like that is, you know, the United States is a pretty heavy place to live in terms of taxes. And then you put yourself in California and I don't think there's a worse place on the planet. So one of the things I love when speaking with Phil is he has such a strong strategic mind. But one of the things he comes down really strongly in terms of tactics is make a big investment in your bookkeeper. And Ian, if I were just to make a guess, I would say most of the small business owners listening to this podcast probably have books that are subpar. Would you say that's a fair assumption? Yeah. As an entrepreneur, it's just sort of like the last thing you want to think about. And so for somebody that's in that situation, that's listened to the advice today, how would you suggest going about getting started keeping rock solid books like you know, you're know you famous for doing? Yeah, I think most people's financial house looks like a hoarder's house for the most part. <laughs> yeah, I'll keep this just because maybe I'll need it later. Or it's generally a nightmare. I think the way to get started is to start on day one, keeping good financial financial records. And you know what Phil recommends is keeping them because it could matter in the future. And that's true. But he also talks about keeping them because it's important now. It's important to know what your financial position is. It's important to know that so you can make good decisions about where you should incorporate, you know, because there's real expenses associated with this, like we've learned in, you know, going to Hong Kong and starting a Hong Kong corporation. The cost structure is, I'd say, higher than in the United States in terms of managing and maintaining that system. And so you have to know from the beginning, from the get-go, number one, if you can afford it, but number two, does it make sense? And these are all things that will become self-evident if you're tracking your books. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this show. You can find the show notes and links to everything mentioned in this episode at our website, tropicalmba.com. You have any parting shots, boss man? Looking forward to getting up with you soon. I think it's going to be in the next week or two. Going to be doing a little cycling together, a little training. That's right. We're going to be doing some serious training. You know, I learned a new acronym, Ian. It's called a MAMIL. I don't know that. I've become one, a middle-aged man in Lycra. <laughs> Coming your way, buddy. Talking today about getting those booties, man. You got to keep those toes warm in the winter. All right. Well, I'll see you at minimum next Thursday morning on the podcast, and I'll leave the liker out of it. Cheers. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.